I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're taking a look inside the writing life of Rachel Abbott. She's a Kindle bestseller. Well, I'm doing her a little disservice there. A mega seller, really. She's published 11 books, mostly psychological thrillers. Her new one is called The Murder Game. Uh, we talk about how things changed slightly when, when she got published after initially selling so well on Kindle. What happened when that happened? Uh, you can also hear why she rereads quite a lot of her stories at the start to get to know her characters. And why for her, getting visual really helps out. I get pictures. I have an idea in my head of what this person will look like because I know what their personality is. And I put into Google search some of the key characteristics um, and see what comes up. And and that helps me as well. So I always paste a picture in. Loads more on the way with Rachel Abbott this week in Writer's Routine. Hello, welcome along to the show. My name's Dan, this is Writer's Routine. It's the show where we take a little sneak peek inside the working day of some of the most successful authors to see how they get stuff done. Now, this week's show is brought to you by Agatha. It's the brand new debut by the Danish novelist Anne Catherine. Uh, It was published in Denmark a few years ago, and now, finally, it's heading all around the world. It's a small book with a big story about the human condition. It's set in 1940s Paris, which uh, immediately evokes so much, doesn't it? Uh, It's all about a French psychiatrist who is heading towards retirement, the retirement that he has longed for for so long. You see, he's tired of it all. He's tired of listening to patients and tired of himself and tired of his life. But then Agatha enters as one of his last clients, and soon his whole life begins to change. She changes him, and he wonders if it's too late to reconsider your whole life at 71 years old. Can he ever change? That's what the story's about. It's a feel-good book all about a lonely psychiatrist. And Anne studied psychology, so she really knows about this stuff. She's written prose and poetry throughout her life. Uh, It's a fascinating, joyous exploration of the human mind. Uh, If you love, if you like stories uh, like My Name is Lucy Barton and The Guest Cat, 
Uh, I think you'll really like Agatha as well. Uh, the Independent said it's a shrewd, skillful tale of loneliness. Uh, the Herald says that the Doctor is a is a more fully realised character in such a short book like Agatha uh, than most larger ones would ever manage. Uh, and it's turning into quite a literary phenomenon. It's called Agatha, and Anne Catherine has sponsored the show this week over on our Patreon page. So if you can, I really would like you to go and check it out if you can. If you like stunningly written books that are slightly poetic... Uh, that are fantastically joyous and life-affirming, really go and check it out. It's called Agatha by Anne Catherine. Have a look for it. Now, this week, our guest is Rachel Abbott. Her debut, Only the Innocent, became a number one bestseller on Kindle. And since then, she's published 11 books, sold over 4 million copies. They've been translated into 21 languages. Uh, The new one is called The Murder Game. It's all about a group of friends who meet in Cornwall, where a murder mystery game becomes a little too realistic. It's a great pitch, you've got to say. We talk about the bunker that she locks herself away in to write, and why having a good writing room is almost the top priority for any house that she looks around. Also, you can hear why having an editor made such a difference to her, and, and how that has changed, what she's published since she'd started releasing physical copies, not just going straight to Kindle. You can also hear about uh, the business plan that she wrote to get her book noticed and how her career background really helped out with that and why she colour codes her plot points as well. Uh, It's all on the way with Rachel Abbott and we start, as always, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. I write in what used to be a Victorian gunpowder shelter. So it's quite a unique room. So looking around me, the walls are bare brick um, and bare stone, and it's got a curved ceiling. Um, I can just about see out of a window, but the wall is probably about five feet thick. So um, I can just see um, outside into the garden slightly. And then behind me, I've just got all my books um, and lots of different foreign language translations as well. Now, it sounds being locked away in, 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 a, in an old shelter. It seems quite dark and forbidding. Have you done anything to it? How have you dressed it up in, in a way to give you some inspiration while you're writing? Well, the, the roof is a, it's a big curved roof. It's quite a big room. It's not a tiny room. So it's quite a big room. And the roof is painted brilliant white. So that gives lots of light back. And we also it's all also quite well lit. But it's a lovely room for atmosphere. You know, there, there aren't loads of distractions, which is always a good thing. Um, and it's a warm room. Um, and, you know, I, I'd like to think that there are, um, lots of um, memories in this room of people who've been here before because it's um, the property was built in the 1800s. It was built by the Victorians as a, it's part of a fort so um, to protect the island of Alderney. When you first moved in, had you had your eye on it as a writing room? Yes. So when we were looking for, every time we've looked for property for the last few years since I started writing seriously, um, the first priority has been, where am I going to work? Um, it's really important. I didn't want to work in a room where other people were then restricted from moving around. Um, I wanted to be able to come in here and work at any time. And so it's always been a bit of a priority for me to find somewhere 
where I can shut myself away and focus. You say right at any time. We'll pick up on that in just a second. Um, okay. You've got your bright white wall overhead uh, and it is quite big. Uh, you've got your books behind you. If I were to walk into the, the old Victorian gunpowder room, would I, would I get any inspiration? Would I get any idea, sorry, as to what you were writing at that time have you got plot points all over the wall is there a whiteboard somewhere well no because i'm a bit of a i'm a bit of a techie um although it may not seem so by the fact that i wasn't sure how to switch on my headset you did better than most you did better than most rachel (laughs) but generally speaking i am i love technology before I um, started writing, I used to run a, an interactive media company. And going back, goodness knows how many years, I used to be a systems analyst and computer programmer. So I love anything that technology can do. So I do all my planning is done on my computer. I use lots and lots of different tools um, to plan my books. So And I have a big screen so I can pull up all of the... Um, notes etc that i make as i go give us a flavor of some of the tools why do you need so many is not word or scrivener and a couple of post-it notes useful enough for you how what else are you integrating into this well i use scrivener mainly um so and then i eventually i output it to word because obviously most editors um would prefer to use word they don't generally use scrivener or at least not the editors that I've worked with. So I start off in Scrivener, which is great because you can move things around and so on. But when I'm developing ideas, I use various other tools. So there's a a piece of software um, called Scapel that comes from the Scrivener family, and that's basically loads of post-it notes. So you can um, start just plotting down ideas and sort them into order, and then you can put them into Scrivener. Um, there's also I also use um, sometimes depends very much on the book I use um, something called Coggle which is a mind mapping piece of software um, that's online and I use that for character definitions really so I have um, a Coggle chart which shows all the various aspects of personality that I need to think through carefully before I start to write my books so I use that um, I could go on. I use several. <laughs> well, here's a here's a question. Why do you think you need all these different um, things to 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 help you? Help is the wrong word, but all these different things to help you when you are writing your story. Uh, this is not meant aggressively. I'm just curious what what's no, no. wrong with old fashioned paper and pen. Nothing at all, and I use that quite a lot as well. So I quite often scribble ideas down. I quite often dictate ideas into my phone. Sometimes I think I use technology because I like technology. So um, there is a piece of software that I use occasionally called um, Aeon Timeline. And the reason I use that is so that I never get confused about how old people are at various points in the story. It's quite easy to start writing a book and think you know exactly what happens when and then realise that actually that person wouldn't have been that age at that point in time. You know, it's just making sure that everything... It's dotting the I's and crossing the T's, really, to make sure everything's clear. But I would say I use far more technology than I actually need to, but I like doing it. I enjoy doing it. Okay, so I'm normally in the office no later than 9 o'clock. I suppose that's just routine because for years and years and years I... I ran, I ran a company and I had to be in the office by nine. And so it's, it's second nature to me. 
Um, I would normally work until about one when I would stop briefly for lunch. Um, and I say briefly, I I go back into the main house and have lunch with my husband, but I'm sure he wonders whether I've actually been there or not because my head is usually still in what I'm writing at lunchtime. So um, if I do talk at all, it's probably about the characters in my books. Um, so I stop briefly for lunch and then come back into the office and work till probably about 4.30 now. It used to be later. I used to work later. Um, but because I generally work seven days a week, I decided to cut back a little bit on the hours and so finish about 4.30. But it depends how things are going. You know, if I'm really on a roll and it's all hanging together, I just carry on writing. That seems quite a thoughtful and considered writing routine. Let me just follow up with a few questions. If you're starting writing at nine o'clock, how are you setting yourself up for a full day uh, at the coal face, bashing out the words? Well, I suppose if I'm honest, there's quite a lot of other stuff that I have to do as well as writing. So it would be lovely to think that I start writing, I start actually writing my latest book at nine in the morning and finish at 4.30. But there's a lot of other stuff that has to be done. So I have to do, um, I have to respond to emails. I get quite a lot of emails from readers as well as um, other administration type emails. Um, I quite often have to write articles for magazines and so on when when requested. I don't I don't write anything that I write on spec and and submit. But if I'm asked by my publicist to write something, then I have to do that. Um, there's Facebook and Twitter and my Facebook group and um, my mailing list. So I write um, emails to people on my mailing list. So there's quite a lot of other admin stuff. Not to mention the boring stuff like accounts. That all has to be done. Um, so I suppose I start off the morning by going through my emails and seeing what I need to do that's absolutely essential so that I can then free up my time for writing. When you finish writing, say 4.30 now, um, how good are you? you? You mentioned that you're not good at parking the story while you're having your lunch, much to your husband's uh, chagrin. <laughs> uh, when you finish at about um, 4.30, how good are you at resting the story until you pick things back up at 9 or 10 tomorrow, the next day? I'm quite good at resting it briefly. So I'm quite good at resting it um, probably until um, until I go to bed, which is when I suddenly come alive again and start thinking so I I don't sleep as well as I should um so I tend to in the evenings if well we're not going out at the moment of course but um if we weren't going out I would tend to watch what I would refer to as fairly basic easy watching television that doesn't tax my brain too much or I would read um but other people's books so um you know just to take me away from where I was and then probably by the time I go to bed, my brain starts working again and I start going through ideas and I always have to have a notepad and pencil next to the bed in case I wake up in the night with some stunning idea. And then certainly when I wake up in the morning, I usually stay in bed for at least half an hour mulling over the ideas that have come to me in the night. Let's say you get a solid five and a half hours of writing every day. Uh how many how many words would you hope to write in that day? That's again a really difficult question. I'm a very fast typist. Many year many years ago, I learned to touch type, so I can probably type about eighty words a minute. So in theory, you know, it sounds as if I could write a book in a few days, but it doesn't quite work like that. So I do a lot of research. Um, research takes a lot of my time, even though I don't always use everything that I've researched. 
but I do spend a lot of time doing that and I have quite a lot of um, communication with my police advisor um, to make sure that I'm not making the police do things that they wouldn't normally do or things that are, um, are inappropriate. So I do a lot of research, um, which takes a, a vast amount of time. And I also, when I'm doing research, I also try and get photographs of the places that I'm talking about, if they're places that I don't know myself. Um, so sometimes when I'm writing my series that's based in Manchester, I'll spend some time talking to my sister who still lives in Manchester and she will pop out with a camera and take photographs for me um, and send them to me if they're places that I don't remember very clearly. So there's a lot of research, really. It just seems interesting that someone who writes seven days a week and has planned their time quite efficiently uh, to, to, to not be so concerned about the word count. Do you have any goal every day of how much you would like to get down? Uh, it depends where I am in the writing process. In the early stages, probably only a couple of thousand words. Um, because of each time I come to a point in it, I think, okay, I need to stop now and I need to work out how this is going to impact on the character. One of the things that really works for me is developing the personalities of my characters because once I really understand that character, then the book tends to sort of write itself a bit more clearly. And so the first probably... 30% 30% of the book, I'm still getting to know the characters. So each day I will go back and read what I wrote the day before and amend it and tweak it so that then when I'm moving forward, I'm being consistent with the characters. And then when I really feel as if I understand that character well, then I'll probably up to three, three and a half thousand words a day. How do you know um, when you understand the character well? What What's the moment? What's the tipping point where you think, ah, that's who they are? When I when I had in my head a plan of what they were going to do and when I suddenly realised they wouldn't do that. So I have a little, in my head, I have I know how the story's going to go. But then when it actually comes to writing it, especially in the latter stages of the book, when the character is much better known to me, I then realise that they wouldn't do what I'd originally planned. So I have to rethink big chunks. You mentioning that you have an idea in your head of what you what the story is going to be, at least initially anyway. Um, w- working seven days a week, how do you know what you will be writing on uh, on the day as you do sit down to tell your story? Have you got any idea what's coming for the rest of the day? Yes, I tend to write sequentially. So quite a lot of writers, um, because you're using something like Scrivener where you can, you can in theory write different chapters from one from the beginning, one from the middle, one from the end, and then slot them all together later. But I tend to work sequentially. So as I finish each day, I like to have a reasonably clear idea of what I'm going to be writing the next day. And then um, the reason why I can't sort of sit down and write 80 words a minute, I'm just trying to work out. So if I was writing 80 words a minute then in theory, I should be able to write 4,800 words an hour, which is absolutely not the case. So, uh, And that's because I'm constantly reviewing what I've written, constantly reviewing how the story works, how my characters work within that story, when information is revealed, because, of course, I write thrillers. So at what stages you actually give information to the readers so they're starting to get a clue as to what's happened um, 
is quite important not to give it too soon but not to give it too late i don't i don't want to write books where people get right to the very last page and say gosh i had no idea what was going to happen because that's not realistic the thing about only the innocent was i'd had the idea in my head for a long time so i'd had plenty of time to stew over the idea and to work it out to work out the intricacies so the the basic premise was what set of circumstances can be so bad that a woman has no choice but to kill a man now i wanted this woman to be a perfectly normal rational woman who never would consider killing anybody ever um, and so I had to try to work out why there was nobody she could tell, why nobody would believe her if she told them what was happening, what was so bad that the only option was for him to die. And so I'd been working on this plan for a long, long time. And when I sat down to start to write it, I did sketch out the whole thing. Um, I knew the stages that the story had to go through. I also, by then, knew my character quite well. But I still had to do quite a lot of research. And I was quite thrown in the middle of it, actually, because my original plan had somebody getting on a train, um, the Eurostar train. But, of course, partway through writing the book, um, they changed which station the Eurostar came into. So I had to rethink a big chunk of the book. Um, the only difference really was that when I'd written it, I got lots of people to read it and comment and so on. And I hadn't really understood the editing process. So I hadn't understood what a structural editor does. I thought an editor was like a proofreader, really, and hadn't understood the importance of an edit. So after I published Only the Innocent, and it did really well and sold a lot of copies... But then I got an agent and a really brilliant agent who said to me that she thought that the book was really good, but she thought it would benefit from an edit. And I thought, oh, OK, then. Um, and when I got the notes back from the editor, it suddenly all became crystal clear to me how important getting a good editor was. And so um, the whole book was edited and re-released and it just... Um, it has still sold many before then, but the editing process was a real eye-opener to me. Would you mind talking us through some of the things that the editor picked up on, some of the things that clearly many, many readers weren't that bothered by because you'd sold a lot of copies the first time around, but what, what was it that the, 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 the editor was teaching you? In what, in what position were they turning you, while you what, which you have learned to tell in future stories? Well, because only the innocents had already sold quite a lot, they couldn't, they couldn't change the structure massively. They couldn't change the plot in any way. Um, but what they did was that the things that kind of really made me think, there were quite a few scenes that were fairly heavy in dialogue. And they would say to me, so... What are they doing in the room? What's actually, what can we see? We can hear what they're saying, but what can we see them doing? So I hadn't thought about, you know, somebody walking over and picking up a decanter of whiskey and pouring a glass and walking over, just, just to create some movement, to create some visuals so that people, some people could see what was happening in the room as well as hear what was being said. Now, lastly, on the difference between days, I know you've said that there isn't really too much change in the, in the way that you've worked throughout the years. Um, it's just really the editing. Aside from the editing, um, what have you learned through 11 novels now 
about how you work, about how you work best? What, what do you need to do to, to tell the story in the perfect way for you? I need to understand the characters really, really well. And that's not just what they look like. It's about what motivates them, what they what their personal weaknesses are, because you can't really have characters who are perfect in every way. They have to they have to have some flaws. You have to find out what it is that's motivating them and how they change throughout the course of the story. And so I do work for my main characters. I work that out in, in fairly major detail to start off with. Um, and that, to me, is the thing that drives the story and makes makes my readers feel that they know the characters. And that was particularly important in the murder game, actually, because in the murder game, there were a group of people who were getting together. Some of them know each other quite well. Um, one or two of them don't know each other at all. But you've somehow got to get these characters so that they are completely distinct from each other. And if somebody speaks, you don't really need to say which character is who's speaking, you can tell because of the way they speak, because of um, how they sit in their seat, um, how they lean forward or lean back or their mannerisms. So the characterisation is the is the key for me. Do you only do that in storytelling, as in on the page, or are you getting to know your characters in other methods before you actually write that first sentence? Yeah, I, I do. As I say, I use quite a lot of... of character development tools, if you like, so that I'm... I, and also I, I get pictures. I have an idea in my head of what this person will look like because I know what their personality is. And I put into Google search some of the key characteristics um, and see what comes up, and and that helps me as well. So I always paste a picture in, and then, as I mentioned, I use this piece of software called Coggle, um, which I've set up with the key personality traits that should drive a story. Um, and so I do that before I start. Now, before we get into the into into the murder game, just one last question about, about the debut, Only the Innocent. It became extremely successful on Kindle. I mean, many, many people who self-publish could only dream of the success that you had. Why do you think that sold way more than, than many other self-published stories do? Well, there's always an element of luck. You know, you, you, I can't deny the fact that there has to be an element of luck in this. Um, but um, I think that because of my past um, life running a company, I had a few advantages. I knew how to write a marketing plan. And I didn't do it to start off with. I just, when I published on the Kindle, I just did it for my own pleasure, really. Okay, I'm just going to... I'm just going to stick it up there and let's see what happens. And then it got to Christmas the first year. So it had been up there for um, just over four weeks, probably five weeks. And it sold six copies on Christmas Day. And I thought, whoa, this is fantastic. Somebody's bought my book. You know, it was quite exciting. And then I just sat there. Well, I was in my stepdaughter's house. And I can remember sitting there thinking, this is actually quite pathetic. I used to run a company... I should be doing something. I should be writing a business plan. And so I sat down and I worked out how I was going to get people to know about my book because obviously the very first thing you've got to do is make people know it's there. If people don't know it exists, they can't buy it. So I had to 
um, come up with lots and lots of ideas for getting the word out that Only the Innocent was up there and available on Kindle. There were probably only about 2 million books on Kindle then, as opposed to about, I don't know, 6, 7 million now. So I wouldn't say it was easy, but it was easier. And um, and then, fortunately for me, people enjoyed it. And so they started to chat about it on forums. And, and so the marketing plan worked in terms of getting people to know it existed. But fortunately, people then enjoyed the book. Step one in the marketing plan, how, how did you make people aware of it? I, mean, I think you've done yourself a great disservice to say that well, you were one of two million books on Kindle at that point. So it was easy. I mean, you're still one of two million books. <laughs> how were you making people aware that, that this did exist? Well, it, it, what worked then um, doesn't work now. OK, so I should say that at the start. At the time that I started, there were quite a lot of forums. And there still are forums, but um, people were chatting about books and authors could go onto the forums and chat about their books. What tends to happen now is that the author forums tend to have um, authors going on and posting about their book and then just going again, you know, not engaging, using them as a marketing device rather than as a means of getting to know people. So what I did was I went on to the, what were then the Amazon forums, I think it was called Meet Our Authors, and I would go on there and I would chat to people, not just say, here's my book, buy it. Um, and those people, they were the ones who then promoted it to other people. Um, it doesn't work in the same way. Now, I use Twitter a lot more then than I do now. I use Facebook more than Twitter now because most of my readers seem to be on Facebook. But, you know, it was small steps. But once a few people who were avid readers got to know about it, they were talking about it on other forums. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. 
We'll get more with Rachel Abbott in just a sec. Uh, remember, this show is brought to you by Agatha, the brand new joyous novel all about loneliness and reinventing your life by Anne Catherine. Uh, you can find out more about the story. Search it online. You can find it at writersroutine.com. Now, if you would like your new novel to sponsor the show, just like uh, Agatha, you can make that happen. Just pledge and support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Uh, maybe your book launch has been slightly dampened uh, and you're struggling to get the word out. Well, I can make that happen for you. I can't honestly promise how much use it will actually be, but uh, the show will reach a few thousand people. Um, and hopefully some of them will pick up on my advice, because even though I'm plugging the wares of people sponsoring the show, uh, it, it's kind of one of these things. We've got a community going on at writers routine. And, and I think... Um, Everyone that's written a story uh, is worth talking about. And I reckon it's worth looking up and, and reading as well. I will try and push your novel with gusto, with passion. And it's easy to get that happening over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Now, if you don't fancy sponsoring the show, if you just want to help us out, well, you can do that as well. Just a dollar or so a month really helps us. Uh, it helps us keep bringing you chats with some of the most successful authors around so we can steal some of their writing secrets. You get some merch as well from us, just, just to say thanks for getting involved. So if you've learned anything in over 100 episodes now that has helped the way that you write, uh, you can help us do more of that for more people with a small pledge over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right then, let's get back to it with Rachel Abbott chatting about her brand new novel, The Murder Game. In this half, we talk about the very beginning of the story. And why she almost leaves that till last. We also talk about her colour-coded cards. Uh, hard to say, uh, but a lot of fun. And, and how they help her plot. And we pick things up talking about the murder game. And how she got that very first idea. The idea came into my head. Uh, it was actually originally going to be based in Italy. Um, because we have a property in Italy. And um, I was there on holiday and I thought, um, just a, it's really difficult to actually tell you what the idea was that came to my head because it will actually give away the whole story. Um, so I just came up with the idea of a murder mystery party to start off with because when we, um, our property in Italy, we used to rent it out. And I remember distinctly this group of people who came for a holiday, they held a murder mystery party there. And it was really interesting because there was a big storm and all the lights went out right in the middle of their murder mystery story. And that, and that doesn't play any part at all in the murder game, but it was just that idea of, of something where people were playing a game. But then I wanted to turn it completely on its head to give the whole concept of a murder game a much, much more sinister um, basis. And it's, as I say, it's so hard to say more than that about it i'm gonna try and eke it out of you um <laughs> that's kind of the point uh what happens next then you've got that initial idea i know that you say you'd love to work on your characters and if you've yes. got a group of friends there are a lot of characters there but what happens the day after you have that idea as an author who tells stories for a living what do you do next how do you begin to turn this idea into a bestseller I think the best way of explaining this really is to talk about something that's called the snowflake method. I don't specifically use the snowflake method, but it's the best way really of describing my thought processes. So I start off with a single line of a story and then I might develop that idea into, so it goes from a, a single sentence 
into a, a paragraph which explains a little bit more about it. And then each sentence in that paragraph then gets expanded into a paragraph of its own. And as I try to think about how that might work, and by the time I've got to that stage... And you are writing all of this? You, you are actually writing the sentences and then the paragraph? Yes, yes. Often on paper, actually. Um, not always. Sometimes I use scapel, sometimes I use... It depends what I'm, how I feel at the time. But I actually then write how that idea has developed. But once I get to the point of having maybe five separate strands that each have their own paragraph, then I start on the characters. Because um, without the characters, the story doesn't really, to me, have anywhere to go. So I'll then start on my major characters and start developing who they are and what's, in the case of the murder game, what their background and their secrets were, because each of them had to have a secret for the, the story to work. So what were their secrets and how could they... I didn't want them to be so awful that these people were um, unrecognisable as people that you might know. So I like to keep the characters to be as real as they can be. So they could be people who you actually know. Um, and so then I started working on that, what their secrets were, what their relationships were like with each other, um, who likes who, who doesn't like who, etc. When you're writing a story like this, where you've got a group of friends, I think it can quite easily uh, you you can you can paint the characters as as almost caricature. That's what quite that's what quite often happens when there are quite a lot of people in one place. You know, you've got the boisterous one, you've got the one who's out to ruffle feathers, you've got the the shy one. Dot dot dot. How are you? How are you learning about these characters? Right before you've bothered with your mind map and all of that. How are you? actually figuring out the essence of these characters who needs to be in this murder game so again i'm struggling not to give too much of the story <laughs> away here um they all have to have a reason to be there they all have to have a reason to go back there the second time because the book starts um at one point but then we go back to a year earlier to learn how they reached where they are now so um, they all have to have a reason for doing that. And, and they're all, there has to be something that ties them together. So I think that for them to all be tied together as people who would have spent time together in the past, you can't really make them caricatures because they would have hated each other. Um, <laughs> so you have to give them things that, are, that they have in common and then see where they um, stray away from commonality between them if you see what I mean so little things about them that might be a bit irritating like the one who likes to be the centre of attention or the one who's so laid back that he practically falls over but not overdo it they've got to seem real they've got to seem like people that you might know now you're quite a thorough plotter you would say yeah yeah you, you mentioned earlier on how you know you know your characters when they are pulling away from what you want them to do. How yes. willing are you to go with them as they drag the story somewhere that you had not predicted? Oh, 100%. I, I mean, the only other option to that is, well, there are two options. One is I could force them to do what I want them to do. And in that case, um, their readers wouldn't 
buy into the characters at all. You know, the readers are quite smart and they would know straight away if this character was doing something that was out of character. The other option is to go back and change the characters and I rarely want to do that. I would much rather they they stuck with the characters they are. I mean, th- there's always a problem when you write thrillers that um, people have to do things that you would hope that nobody you knew would actually do, otherwise it wouldn't be a thriller. Um, and I do quite often get comments from readers saying, well, nobody would ever do that. And I always wonder who this nobody is because people do the strangest, the weirdest things in real life, don't they? You know, in reality, people do some pretty dreadful things. So I have to try to keep the balance right between characters that my readers will understand, will have sympathy with, um, who might occasionally be shocked by, but they need to understand them. And so with that in mind, I can't just make them do things that will be out of character. How often have they pulled it in a direction which is really... Uh, rocked, rocked the boat, and, and almost, and almost had you changing your ending. Oh uh, well, the, the the classic Stranger Child was the classic for that. Um, so Stranger Child was my fourth book, and um, it's the story of a, a young girl who goes missing at the age of six, um, and everybody believes that she must be dead, and her father hasn't seen her, and then she turns up in the family house. Um, he, uh, I won't bore you with the rest of the story, but at the very end of the book, I had to make a decision about what would happen to this girl, um, Natasha, or Tasha as she's known. And I spoke on the phone to my agent about it for quite a long time, and we came to a conclusion about how the story would end. And when I came to write it, I couldn't write it. it I just could not write the ending that we'd agreed. And the ending was so entirely different that I then had to write a novella to follow on with it to explain what, well, to tell the story of what happened to Tasha afterwards. I quite often don't write the beginning. I don't, a lot of my books, most of my books actually start with a prologue. Um, I tend not to write the prologue until I've written the rest of the story or I have an idea for the prologue. Um, So um, I then come back and write the prologue afterwards because the beginning is really important and and I think that particularly if it's featuring one of the characters that's going to be a major part in the book then by the time I go back to the prologue I have to really understand that person and understand where they're coming from. When did you start that type of writing not that that process of not writing the prologue until almost the end? Um, I think in when I first started, I probably wrote the prologue first and then I went back and scrubbed it out and rewrote it, whereas now I don't even bother trying. So I'm working on a book at the moment, which is another one in the Stephanie King series, which is what the murder game is. Um, and I've written maybe the first five lines of the prologue because I had an idea for an opening line. So I wrote that and then I don't quite know what happens in the rest of that Um that prologue, because the prologue happens five days after the beginning of the book, if that makes sense. So I just need to, I'll work that in later. So rather than try and struggle to write something without thoroughly understanding what's happening, I um, I'll go back to write that later. But the other thing is, you said that I plan everything, which I do to a pretty good degree, but I very rarely know how the book's going to end. 
I don't know. The one I'm writing now, I've no idea how it's going to end. So how much do you know about it in terms of percentage terms? Uh, how much would you would you imagine that you, you, know, you do know? About 80%. So I know what's going to happen. I know who's doing what and to whom. I just don't know how it's going to pan out. Why is that? Is that a conscious decision to maybe not... To, to, to not think it all through in your head because that doesn't leave any, any 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 element of surprise? No, sometimes I think I know what the end's going to be and then it turns out to be completely different. But I, I rarely know... Uh, it's only occasionally that I've known what the end is going to be. Normally, that really does play itself out through how the story develops and how the characters develop. That's really interesting that you're throwing these characters into a situation of your design without understanding how they're going to um, deal with it. I know it sounds bonkers, doesn't it? <laughs> I very rarely verbalise this, you know, mainly it's, it's something that I've thought of myself and, and I know that that's what I do. But um, it's quite difficult if you're pitching the idea for a book, you know, to, to somebody. So if I'm, my agent wants to know what the book's about and says, how does it end? I have to say, I don't know. Well, let me talk to you about what you do know then. Through 10 novels, 10 psychological thrillers, um, you mentioned earlier uh, not wanting to reveal things too soon. Uh, How do you know about the beats? What what, what moment you need to do things? And you're you're a genre writer as well, which means there are certain tropes that you do need to include. How do you know when they are happening? Well, that's one of the ways that I use Scrivener Um, Scrivener, if you've ever used it, has some really interesting features. So you can colour code things. And so what I tend to do is I colour code my chapters according to whether they're, they're either green, amber or red. Red means something really startling is happening, something that's going to make you jump out of your chair Amber means it's a kind of ooh moment, what's all that about? And green means that the story is progressing, but there's not a moment of extreme tension in it. And if I get too many green scenes together, um, I know I've got to fix something. So then I'll shift a few things around so that the, the, the tension is building all the time and rising up and dropping down, rising up and dropping down. I'm fascinated to know... More, more that the thought behind these processes, how you like the decisions that you make, the thoughts that you have, which then lead you to color code pop, uh, color code plot points. Um, I think you, you read a chapter, and you, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't put any chapter or scene in that I didn't think was good and didn't add to the story. But you can't have. I don't personally enjoy books where the tension is ramped up all the way through because it's. You need a bit of ebb and flow. You need a bit of personality. You need a bit of character. So um, my book, so The Murder Game, has a, a police woman in it, um, Sergeant Stephanie King, and she has a relationship with a, a detective inspector. And so you get a bit of their relationship, so you've got a little bit of the real character and the real personality coming through. And those would generally probably be green scenes unless they're suddenly hit by a moment of inspiration about who did what, where and when. So um, I just like to keep the personalities flowing, but also I know that if I want people to carry on reading, I've got to keep providing a reason for them to want to turn the page. And lastly, I think, so this is the second, as you say, in a Stephanie King series, 
you, yeah. you published, I think, uh, eight or nine Tom Douglases before that. Uh, why a switch to a new character? Why could Tom Douglas not uh, deal with the, the stories that Stephanie King is? Well, I, I had an idea for a book um, which came as a result of giving a talk at a women's prison, actually. But um, when I left the prison, I had the idea for a book. Um, and initially, there wasn't going to be um, a police main character in it. There had to be a police man or woman in it. A police officer had to be in it because um, somebody's killed in the first chapter. So <laughs> you kind of need to have a police officer. Um but I didn't want it to be um, a Tom Douglas book. I wanted it to be by the sea for a start, which, you know, there's not much of that in Manchester. Um, so I really felt that this book had to be by the sea. And um, I started, when I wrote the, the beginning of it, I had this um, Sergeant Stephanie King is the person who goes to the house in the first instance and finds the bodies lying on the bed. And when I sent the first few pages to my agent, she said, oh, I'm really looking forward to seeing more of Stephanie King. She seems like a real character. And I thought, oh, oh OK, then. <laughs> so as I wrote it, it became more and more necessary to have a police input because it goes into a court scene, etc., etc. And so it became more necessary. And then when Headline decided to publish that book, um, I'd already started work on the murder game, which was going to be based in Italy, and they said it'd be really great if you could carry on with Stephanie King. So I moved it back to Cornwall and um, and kept Stephanie involved. So that was the reason the first one, and so it begins, um, wasn't a Tom Douglas. It was, um, it, it, for some reason in my head, it had to happen in Cornwall. Right, that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Rachel Abbott for coming on the show. Her new novel is The Murder Game. You can find out more about it over at writersroutine.com. Uh, and also thanks to Anne Catherine for sponsoring the show. Her new novel is Agatha. Please make sure you go check it out online. We've got things about it over on the website as well. It's a short, joyous, poetic book all about loneliness and about changing your life. And if you want to sponsor the show as well, you can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Now, next week, uh, we'll have the normal show for you as always, mostly always on the Friday. But there should be something special and a little bit different popping into your podcast feeds as well on Tuesday. I reckon that will happen. Uh, our first ever writers routine roundtable. Uh, I've utilised lockdown to try and get in the same place some people who I would never manage to get in the same place. Uh, we've got three crime writers on the show together, uh, all talking about how they do it. I'm not really part of it, to be honest. It's them talking amongst themselves, how they get ideas, how they plan, how they storyboard, how they get it down, and actually how working in the police force has helped them tell their stories. Uh, I think it'll be different... Uh, but a lot of fun. I think you'll get a lot out of it as well. Uh, look out for it by subscribing to the show uh, wherever you get your podcasts from. Leave us a review there as well if you can. Uh, and I will see you then next week on Writer's Routine. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.